We turn to God's word as we find that in Psalm 104. We will read the few of the opening few verses and then go on to verse 23. First couple of the few of the opening verses. Psalm 104, bless the Lord. Thou art clothed with honor and majesty. Confessing God as creator, of course. Who layeth the deep. I'm sorry, to verse, yes, to verse 23. Man go There go the ships, there is that Leviathan whom thou hast made to play therein. These wait all upon thee, that thou mayest give them their meat in due season, that thou givest them they gather, thou openest thy hand, they are filled with good, thou hidest thy face, they are troubled, thou takest away their breath, they die, and return to their dust. Thou sendest forth thy spirit, they are created, and thou renewest the face of the earth, the glory on the earth, and it trembleth, he toucheth the hills, and they smoke. I will sing unto the Lord, my being, my meditation of him, I'll be glad. No more, bless thou the Lord, O my soul, praise ye the Lord. We turn Lord. Question and answers twenty seven and twenty eight. And I'm going to read just the first question with the opening couple lines and then have the introduction. And then following the introduction, we will read the question and answers of the Lord's Day in their entirety. Before announcing the theme with the divisions. Lord's Day. 10 opens with these words, What dost thou mean by the the Almighty? So the truth of providence summarizes having to do with that almighty power and will, Jehovah God, 
including the affair of men even determines their eternal destiny. That as it steps all by is not comforting or encouraging to fallen sinful man. That there is a great almighty being whose name is Jehovah God and he controls and he directs all things according to his will so that nothing happens by chance including the events that affect your lives. That in itself is not comforting and encouraging. Beloved, the only way in which the reality that Jehovah God, the Almighty One, directs and controls all things can be of comfort to a person on the face of this earth is if he is your father and that you are his dear children, sons and daughters and that as he works all things out having to do with your life and the end of your life he does that not only according to his own wisdom and power, but in his love. And then understand this as well, that that Jehovah God you can know if you confess the name of Jesus of Nazareth to be your Savior and your Lord. That you belong to Him in the way of faith and repentance and are committed to the way because if one is not committed to the ways of God it is an empty confession. Now forget the first question and answer, third part. He makes me sincerely and willing henceforth to live unto him. One who belongs to Jesus has that desire. If one does not have the desire, it doesn't matter what you say about his name. It's empty. It is a fraud. Nonetheless, beloved, we go back to the original consideration the only way that the providence of God and that the Almighty One is the one who controls and directs all things that affects your life is of comfort is if he is your father and he is your father for Christ's sake. Then you can take comfort in what transpires in the history of this world and what affects your life, and only then. Otherwise, 
You're not walking in the way of life. You're walking in the way of death. And everything one does and says in the end is contributing not to God's approval, but to condemnation and judgment. And so this confession, you know, I, as we have it in the in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father. But I believe not only that God is Father and the Maker of the heavens and the earth, but that He is my Father. And I am His child. And therefore, under His care, me being directed by Him, as by his own hand. And now, that said, let's read the whole of the Lord's Day. What dost thou mean by the providence of God? shall separate us from his love since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. In what we just read, beloved, there is a significant word, a reoccurring word, and that word is the word hand. Notice in the very opening, as it were, by his hand. And as that first question answer closes, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. In the very Lord's day close phrase, since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. And that's, of course, a figure that is lifted from the scriptures. The word was used in the passage that we, that we read in Psalm 104, where it says that thou givest them, they gather, thou openest thy hand, they are filled with good. You'll find that phrase in other places as well, in the, in the Psalms, we sung it in Psalm 255, in his hands are earth deep, earth's deep places. But especially Isaac,
righteousness, upheld by God's own hand, that hand that governs and directs. And if you were ever asked to give an explanation of providence, not at all in your explanation of what you understand by God's providence, to bring into your explanation a reference to God's hand and that he by his hand, as it's directed by his will, controls and directs all things. But that knowledge, in the end, the love to the believer is a great comfort. God's an instructive figure, an all-inclusive problem, having spiritual implications of importance to know this as the question and answer for 28 makes plain. Oh, God's fatherly hand of providence and instructive figure, first of all, And there is a word of God in a man's hands. It's a feature of man that sets man and us apart from all the animals. And I'm not simply talking about the animals that have but the 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 great apes and yet their hands do not compare in the end to the hands with which God made man the marvelous dexterity of the hand of man with the hinged thumb which the great apes do not have. And it's with the hand of a man that he can grasp not only, but he can manipulate and build things of wonderful structure, and it even enables him to have a certain control and dominion over the creation to manipulate and shape and form what he finds in the having to do with the gift of a hand. There is in the hand of a man a word of God, and it isn't even a word of God concerning himself, beloved. That was brought home to me in a book that I read some 30 years ago or more, written by a Dutch author of a Christian faith, a book that has even been recommended in the Standard Bear book by a certain Anna de Vries. And in one of those books, he has this lad of about 14 years old, Bartholomew, who is sitting by the bedside of his father, only his father is dead. It's the corpse of his father on that bedside who had been killed in a tragic 
accident history that took place, according to the author, in a fictional way prior to World War I in an agricultural age and father who was caught up in a threshing machine, as I recall, and as they sent word to the mortician to come, they laid the body of this father on the bedside, on the bed, and that young son of 14 years sat and watched and looked and saw the corpse of his father taken by the providence of God in a very tragic, one might say, severe providential way. But according to the book, as he looked upon the body of his father, there was a feature that he couldn't take his eyes off of, and that had to do with his father's hands, as they had folded his father's hands on his stomach. And those hands reminded that young lad of who his father had been to him and to them. He was a farmer and a man of few words, but he was a man who loved his family, and those were the hands, beloved, that he labored with a view to his family and to provide for his family and its upkeep. Those were the hands that had even the hands that had saved him. He recalled well, yet when he was four years old, standing at the brink of a canal, the border of their property, he had fallen into a rather deep canal, and as he stumbled and fell, he cried out, Father, Father, and his father, just a little ways away behind the horses, left the horses go and ran to the canal, and as this little boy went under the water for about the third time with his clothes, suddenly, his clothes soaked, suddenly a hand reached down and picked him up and held him to his breast as this little boy spit and sputtered and regained his breath. As the author stated, it was the hands of this father that spoke to him so eloquently of his father and what his father had meant to him, but now was gone and departed. Beloved, a figure, a figure that is lifted from Scripture that is applied to God himself. We quoted already from Psalm 104. We quoted from Psalm, uh, from Isaiah chapter 41. And you can find this words scattered elsewhere. We have sung concerning this, as I have said in Psalm number 255, in his, ha- in his hands are earth deep places. There are any number of anthems that we, we sing that have, re- have regard to this figure, all that I have, all I have needed thy hands have provided, and he leadeth me, he leadeth me by his own hands, he leadeth me, or again, speaks of 
I am weak, but thou art mighty. Guide me by thy mighty hands. And the songs, of course, go up. Striking, you know, that you find the first reference to using the figure of hands as applied to God in Genesis. Now, I'm talking about the figure here, of course, and it's in Genesis chapter 49, where Jacob is dying, and he brought the stone, the rock of Israel, the hands of Joseph, made strong by the hands of God. Joseph's hands used, but the strength of those hands in the end was the strength of Jehovah God himself in the way of defense, safety, and it works out, of course, to salvation. Significant passage in which the figure of hands is used for the first time as applied to God. Spirit quoting one of the Psalms. So not only Christ declares this, but even a dying believer declares this, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit on the basis of work, but this and everlasting security preserved by the hands of God. And that reminds me of, of a, another passage with respect to God and the hands of God as it pertains even to election and the fruit of election. Sure, And John states, verse 29, my father, hand, that almighty hand, as it were, by his hands, because, of course, Jehovah God himself has no hands. Nonetheless, it is an apt figure. God says, you may apply to me to quicken you in your understanding of my works and my ways, your dependency upon me, and my steadfast reliability, if you will. The hand of our God, which tells us in the end that he is a hands-on God, a phrase we use with respect to perhaps the owner of a business, we call him a hands-on owner. In other words, it's not just simply he gives his, he has a business and he makes certain 
commands and gives directions and then sits back in his own chair and sees whether or not his uh, employees will, will do what he says and lets them work things up. Not only, but engaged in the actual manufacturing and so on, hands-on, as they say. He's always here with his presence, seeing how things are going and directing them, not only with his hands, but with his word and according to his will. Speaks to us of Jehovah God when it comes to his creation. Not simply the architect of creation who drew up the, up the, up the blueprint, and then not simply the God who then, according to his own blueprint as an architect, with the splendor of his mind, made the creation. removes himself, so to speak, and lets it run according to these laws and these creation principles that we teach our children concerning, concerning in, in school, laws of, of gravity and, and light and electricity and, and molecules and who knows what, these laws of physics and biology, and God has made all these things with the splendor of his mind, and now having made all things, he steps back and says, now, let's see how this all works itself out. I will simply turn this over, if you will, to man and see what man will do with it. And if he brings it into ruin and into chaos, well, it's his fault. I am, as it were, absolved, and he's going to have to simply suffer the own, his own consequences. I gave him his opportunity. I gave him his chance and he blew it, if you will, in his sin and his foolishness, and now you have this mess and this chaos. There's a reason why you have at the conclusion of Lord's Day 10 that all creatures are so in his hand that without themselves they cannot move not only, but all things come to pass not by chance, but by his fatherly Hand, not by chance, not simply left up to the will of man, and we will see what man will make of it according to his wisdom or his folly. That's, beloved, not the scriptures, that's not the God of providence. Now it is true that God permitted man, even according to God's own will, to sin and to bring evil into the world, and if you will, to bring it to the point of ruin, and there is chaos and confusion and lawlessness and wickedness of sin as man brought this into the world. But understand, the truth of providence means that Though, God, though man brought all this evil and this death and so into the world, God even to use this evil to his own end, if you will, to his own glory, but his glory as it's bound up in the providence of God. So that even the 
evil into the world by Satan and then by man whom God created. He, has, he is pleased to use to his own end as he works out judgment and condemnation and salvation and victory. The Catechism points that out, you know, when it speaks of providence as the almighty and everywhere present power. and earth, upholds and governs. Upholds quite in the direction he he wills, not that kind of a, of a God, but he upholds everything so that if he did not uphold them, maintain them, sustain them, everything would lapse into chaos and even vanish, if you will. His word of power as the omnipotent, omnipotent and omnipresent God sustains all things. He remains present in his creation, not only with his being watching, but according to his will and power working, but then not only that, beloved, governing, directing, controlling, having his own end and purpose in mind. Underscore is really an elaboration of what's in underscored in Lord's Day 1. What is the only cover in life and death? The reference, of course, is made to Christ Jesus, who possesses me, body and soul, life and death. But the smallest thing that you can yet see much smaller than that, and things become invisible. And when you consider the hairs of one's head, and that not even one can fall without the determination of my heavenly Father, then that means he has control of everything, even the very insignificant things that don't seem to have any importance at all. Yet he determines the hairs of our head and whether they remain or fall. And the point of the catechism, of course, is if that's true, and that's in connection with preservation, such a small, insignificant thing, So that not even the least thing, the most insignificant things is out of his control. Even the least thing has something to do as far as my salvation will prevent my salvation. Certainly then the things of greatest 
importance and magnitude as they affect our lives will have to do with our salvation and subservient to, if you will, serving our salvation. The word that we use as Calvinists, and properly so, because when you talk about a God who is in control of all things, and Calvin used the word sovereign, he wasn't only referring to salvation, election and reprobation, if you will, that counsel, but also to his control and directing of the events of history and the affairs of this world, sovereign. Children must know that because it has to do with the king and it has to do with the one who is supreme and it's not the men, mankind who's on the earth who is supreme in the end and accomplishing their will in the sense of accomplishing their own and designs in the end subservient to the will of the sovereign, of the king whose world this is. This is my father's will. And notice, all things, beloved, great and small. And let me just, before we go on, make mention of a couple of things of, of history, as God controls all things with a view to his church and salvation and the gospel and the spread of the gospel in mind. This is in keeping in many ways with what you read in Lord's Day Ten when it speaks of herbs and grass and drop and when he speaks of those things, you notice the contrast in many instances, not only of rain but of drought, not only of fruitful years but barren years, not only of health but of sickness, not only of riches but of poverty, testing trying things that bring suffering and work grief. All those things under the control of God. And there are times, of course, when these things are brought to pass that we question that why we should be suffering these things of a drought or a barren year, a sickness or a poverty. What is the purpose in all? And the Catechism is reminding us this according to the will of God as Father, and in this too he has a purpose. All things, not only the good, but what we call evil, and the things that in history, because in Old Testament history, of course, you had a nation that being corrected by the And the believers might have thought at that time we ought to have the son of David on, on the throne and have our own. And the uh, simply as an occupied country wasn't their will, wasn't their desire, but that's where they 
were. And yet in all that, beloved, God had a purpose that served salvation in the sense of the gospel and the spread of the gospel. In what language is the New Testament written? In Greek. And it's written in Greek, of course, because the Greeks in the end under Alexander the Great overcame the whole of the of the world. But as a result, understand and not have to run against borders and so on. Because now Rome ruled, the peace of Rome. If there had been a son of David on the throne of Jerusalem with the border, and these other nations as well had ruled their own border. When Christ is born and what follows, and the gospel must go into the nations, that oppressor Rome, with all of its wickedness and evil, controls the whole of that place, that that part of the world. And those who are ordained to bring the gospel to church could go forth with one language and be understood and could go from city to city unprevented with a, with a freedom. All, you see, by the ordinance of God according to his own will. And you, using even the these evil men with their designs and kingdoms in the service of his own kingdom and the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom, and the establishment of Christ's kingdom in the hearts of those ordained to eternal life. The Catechism here speaks of as by his hand, because as we have said God himself does not have a hand. Our hands are, in some ways, figurative of God's own will, how God determines all things and directs all things by his will of his, his spirit and so on. We have are the expression of our will and we must use mother in the home at the end of the day may wish and wish but if she doesn't get up and set the table and go into the cupboard and get the food and then make the food, the family is not going to have dinner and if you want to go to a restaurant, well, somebody else's hands are going to have to be used to make that food. And a uh, man may be in the house, and he may wish that his driveway is, is shoveled, and uh, he can get out of the garage through a foot of snow. But unless he gets up with a shovel or starts his own tractor and pushes the snow away or gets someone else to do that for him with their hands, there's going to be snow in his driveway. He may get stuck. Better use his hands and a child who has homework may wish the homework were done already but if he's going to do, do the assignment he better open his book with his hands and read the assignment and then get his pencil out with his hands and, and write the answers and beloved even a king a king who has the threat of an enemy at his gates may stop the invader but he's not going to unless he gets his soldiers and gives into their hands in ancient times the swords and the spears and the, and the shields and goes out and with his hands and their hands fight against the enemy to spare the kingdom, the use of our hands to accomplish our will. Well, God doesn't need 
point of view, but his own will and his own power. And his own will and his own power. But he insisted. We could use the example, of course, of Joseph and his and his brothers. You meant it for evil, and they did. And yet God used what they willed to do for Joseph's good, not only but for the preservation of the church of that time, but even Nebuchadnezzar, that wicked king who had only evil in mind for Judah and Jerusalem, and his will was to destroy it and to scatter it, put that nation in subjection. Which Scripture tells us that Nebuchadnezzar like Sennacherib before him, were the rod of his wrath. And they were accomplishing his will, God's will, in the interest of discipline and correction by the use of that judgment. God's will using men and their will. Sometimes, you know, thwarting the will of man. And there's all kinds of instances in the scriptures where he thwarts man's will and for the salvation of his people. One thinks of Deborah and Barak going to fight Canaan with Sisera under the king of Jabin, Jabin, who was the king, of course, and the will of the Canaanites, of course, at that time with Jabin and Sisera was to destroy. And Barak goes with Deborah, and they get into the hills, and God sends this great rain and turns all the battlefield into mud and the chariots are mired and the soldiers of Israel go and they have a great victory over Sisera and the will of Sisera is thwarted and there's of course a young lady who invites him into a tent and puts a nail pig, a tent pig through his temple and they have the victory, the will of man, wicked man thwarted by the will of God and his providence as he sends this great storm that discomfits them but is in the favor of of his people and their army. But even below, a will. The truth of the scripture is not. man into stocks and blocks and into puppets and so on. No matter who it be, a computer screen, God. Scripture doesn't say that, and that's not the Reformed truth either. Scripture says, whosoever will, whosoever will, let him come. Whosoever, the promiscuous call, who will come? Only some will come, and they will come willingly and because Almighty God, as we will consider briefly again this evening, enters their hearts and sets their will free. And now they see the truth, and now they hear the truth. 
and they say, I come, Lord, I come. The water thou hast presented unto me, for that I now have a taste. It is sweet to my taste, and I know my need for it. I come willingly. We are made willing, you see, in the day of his power, the sovereign in his will prevailing over all. But all That was something that was underscored and a bit of history that was brought to my attention. When I was oh, in Redlands some 40 years ago by a woman who's now nearing her 90s, but told me of an event that took place in 1912. That's a significant year, beloved, 1912. Her great grandmother with her uncle and two sisters, this woman's mother had not yet been born, her mother would be born in the States, had to immigrate to the United States. Her husband had gone on ahead of her, of his, his wife and those three children, to purchase some land in, I understand, in Minnesota. And once he had done that with a house, he sent word back, now you may come. So she purchased tickets to sail across the Atlantic to go to see her husband and to live in that new home. They sailed from Rotterdam to Southport in England. And they had tickets to board the, the ship that would take them across the Atlantic in Port, South, Southampton, I believe it was. But the son, the lad of 11 years old, had developed a hacking cough. And the immigration officials there feared it was tuberculosis. So they quarantined them and they could not get on that ship, which had the name Titanic. Ever hear of it? Of course you've heard of it. Who hasn't heard of it? And they were prevented from getting on that ship because the Lord had this little boy with a hacking cough. Can you imagine the disappointment of that mother and those children? They couldn't get on. And they weren't happy at all. You know, go to the airport, and once you know it, that lousy plane is canceled or delayed, and now we have to just sit here. And we grumble. I say we. Is this any way to wear, run an airline? Very easy to do, isn't it? Who has determined that? Men? But under whose control? Four days after the quarantine, the news came back to this woman and her children 
the Titanic has gone down with the loss of all those basically who were in the bowels of that ship, the common passengers, over 1,500 of them. They received the news. Do you think they were complaining and disappointed? Or do you think their complaints and disappointments turned to praise and to thankfulness and gratitude? The Lord in his own way had spared them. Who knows, beloved, the ways of the Lord and what he and his providence prevents and by his prevention allows and accomplishes and keeps us in life and health and who knows what. And I just want to mention again that matter of the, of the Titanic. What man said concerning that Titanic, the story is, you know, that when a woman expressed some fear about getting across the Atlantic, that steward said, Madam, not even the Lord God himself could sink this boat. The unsinkable Titanic on her maiden voyage hits an iceberg. Who directed that iceberg? Who with his finger months previous, broken off that piece of ice and pushed it into the currents, as it were, so that at the appointed time when the Titanic follows that path, they intersect. You think that was by chance? Just happenstance? Or was there an almighty God involved? Even those, you know, on the ship, Many of them unbelieving were singing a psalm at that time. They say, nearer my God to thee. Life and death in the hands of the Almighty and lives affected. But in the end, beloved, this overarching truth, a God of salvation who has his people in mind in his own way to keep them safe unto salvation, calling them from this life, into glory. Something, beloved, we need to know. As the Catechism says, what advantage is for us to know that God that all these things come from the hand and will of not Almighty God, but our Father. Strikingly, the first thing but quickly on that matter of being thankful in prosperity because although We have it all together. And we say, Lord, thank thee for this food and drink for Jesus' sake. Amen. How thoughtful was that? Doesn't mean they shouldn't be saying that, but are they doing it with a lot of thought? What mother has set before them? Are they really filled with thanks or not? We're done. We can go. That's only children. When we have it all, we may say the word. But are we thinking of what the Lord has really given to us? And beloved, 
Thankfulness is not simply a matter of words. It is, but it be better be words that have to do in the end with behavior and action. And true thankfulness, beloved, is obedience to God. And true thankfulness has to do with loving those whom God loves first of all and being of service to those others with what the Lord has given me. That's thankfulness. Thankfulness and prosperity. Putting aside the temptation of saying, this is all mine, and now I can live unto my... Now for the child of God, he didn't give us all these things. He gave us these things to be of use to the people of his kingdom, of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's thankfulness. Thankfulness in prosperity. We need to be reminded of that. But then this matter also of patience in adversity. All the tests and trials of life, and they test one's faith, and they test one's trust. And patience, beloved, is simply that we endure. They, well, sooner or later, it's sooner or later, I can once again be happy. But patience is like the patience of Job, isn't it? To endure. And then under the, not simply to be silent, but still to speak good words, not to be sullen, not to be bitter, not to despair, but in the midst of that adversity, that test and trial, still to speak good words concerning others and to others and concerning God himself. Patient in adversity. And that means, beloved, even being thankful in adversity. Notice how I put that? I did not say I say that God means good by it, as though that's what God requires of us, and that's true piety, being thankful for the adversity. There are adversities, beloved, when we're down the road we look back to and we can say thankfulness for that adversity and the lesson it taught. But that does not mean in the midst of every adversity we're to be thankful for that adversity. I know of an instance, for instance, a young man in Hull a few years back killed as he had a head-on accident with a truck, year 18, adversity. And I was supposed to go, or the pastor was supposed to go and say, be thankful that your son was killed by running into a truck. Stephen stoned to death early in the Testament history. Be thankful that he stoned to death. Paul upside down. Be thankful that he was there, that he was hung upside down. I said, Barry, hung upside down and died. Adversities. You have cancer? News in, in one of our congregations that a 
man has geoblastoma. It was dormant for a while, and now it's acting, and he has, at the most, months and maybe only weeks to live. Be thankful for that cancer. What about a miscarriage? And little was taken from the womb. Be thankful that this little one was taken from the womb. No, beloved, the Lord knows that we are dust. He knows our weakness. But, beloved, in the midst of that affliction and that adversity, there is still reason for thanks. Go back to that young boy by the bed of his father, looking at his hands. A father removed from the home and a husband. He would never feel those hands again. But he could be thankful that this father was a God-fearing father. And he knew his father was in glory and in heaven. And the Lord is a father that endures. And I know, according to the words of my mother in instruction, this God will not forsake us. He will not desert us. He will care for us. A little one taken before you even hold it in your arms. Thankful for what? In the midst of that adversity, that God is a covenant-keeping God. And even this little one, developing in the womb, was his, according to promise, and a lamb. And there comes a day when we will see this child God used us to bring into the church, in the church triumphant. He's that kind of a God. He's that faithful. And as the catechism says, never question or doubt his love. If he didn't love us so thoroughly, beloved, on the cross, he would not have taken his fist against his own son for our sakes. Do you think? You think he has taken his fist against his own son for our sakes? To forget to hold us in his hand and by his hand? Impossible. Beloved, he is a father and a tender love and a powerful father. And with him, at the end of life, into thy hands, we can commit our spirit in faith and hope. Amen. thyself and all thy grace and glory, wisdom and power. In Jesus' name, amen. Two hundred seventy-eight. Two hundred seventy. The tender love a father has. We're going to sing stanzas one, uh, two, and four. One, two, two seventy-eight.
the group. 